0: Oh, it's just another day. It's
1: just another day on earth. And welcome to The Digital Divide. This is your host, Rabia Yaman, And today I am joined by Matthew Shepard, a communications director for Xerces. Did I say it right, Matthew? You did, yeah. Um, an environmental conservation organization that um, has a base here in Portland, Oregon. So we are going to be talking about um, pollinators. We're going to be talking about bees, butterflies, alfalfa, aquatic <laughs> invertebrates. <laughs> and um, we're going to be talking about extinction and efforts to uh, prevent that. So, welcome uh, to the Digital Divide, Matthew Shepard. Thank you so much. And um, let's just start with Xerces. Um, where did that name come from, and what is the organization? Yeah, well the, the Xerces
2: Society. We have a long name. Our full name is the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation. Um, we are a, a nonprofit. We're based here in Oregon, and we take on the protection of everything that doesn't have a backbone. Um so insects I know that <laughs> guy.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um so yeah, so insects of all sorts, um, but also freshwater mussels, um, slugs, snails when needed, um, spiders, and, 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 and all the little tiny creepy crawly stuff that many people would go, Ew! to but we think is just awesome and cool. Um, and our, our name um, we're named after the Zeses blue butterfly uh, which is one of the first butterflies known to go extinct in North America because of human activity um, it used to live in the San Francisco Peninsula area um, it was on the coastal dunes there um, and was last seen flying in 1943 um, in an area that then became um, a munitions dump for the American military during the Second World War um, so it's a, it's an unfortunate tale but It's um, the loss that inspired Robert Michael Pyle to found the Xerxes Society back in 1971. So we're heading up towards our half century, which is pretty exciting.
1: That is exciting. And that's a long time. That's really 1970 and 71. Uh, When was the first Earth Day? That was kind of around that time. Around that
2: time, yeah. I, I, I have to be honest, I don't know that answer that's okay (laughs) but (laughs) it was around i don't know it either it was around that time and it was also a time when there were several um what are now big non-profit organizations like the world wildlife fund um, and various other organizations that were being set up and they they were taking on the issues of protection and conservation of big charismatic you know the fur and feather um, creatures and then bob went well hold on how about the little stuff the the really important things that nobody's taking notice of
1: and, and tell it, tell our listeners why they're important Like, yeah. what, what role do these little teen tiny spineless beasts oh, wow, I
2: mean the, without being being a kind of um, hyperbolic about it, I mean they were beautifully described by e. o. Wilson as the little creatures that run the world because they do. I mean they're out there every day, they're doing things that we don't notice but we benefit from. Um, pollination is a very obvious example you know any, anything as much as one out of each three mouthfuls of food and drink that we consume comes from the pollination by an animal of a crop
1: now, now wait a minute <laughs> say that again how many how many mouthfuls of food
2: one in three is one in calculated. three is, yeah.
1: is um, attributed to a pollinator yeah Right. Yeah, it's Right.
2: Fr- and then, I mean, it goes way beyond that. Cause there's also like, I mean, I'm, I've got a cotton T-shirt on and I sleep on cotton sheets. I mean, I appreciate okay. those. Um, but then these insects also do other things like waste disposal. They're the garbage men of the world. And so it, someone pointed out that we'd be about waist deep in nasty stuff if we didn't have the invertebrates dealing with it for us.
1: Things that we take for granted because yeah. we don't notice, and we're just going on our big giant human ways every day, yep. and there are all these c- other creatures um processing waste and compost mm-hmm. and and moving moving things around,
2: yeah yeah controlling pests you know they're 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 the good insects dealing with the bad insects. you can picture my air quotes there because oh, I
1: know the bad insects, I have carpenter ants. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Because <laughs> from where I sit, there aren't really any bad insects. Yeah, They're just it, it's mm, problematic sometimes.
1: <laughs> um, tell us about pollination. Uh, let's start at the very beginning. How does that work? You know, and and who does that? And, and of course, we, we know it's responsible if we don't have pollinators that um, there are a, a, a tremendous number of crops that we just wouldn't have anymore. It's not like we would starve to death but no. our our diets would be um really be limited. boring it'd be really boring
2: <laughs> we wouldn't have coffee, we wouldn't have chocolate we wouldn't have well that's not most an of option. the fruits <laughs> <you know. laughs> fruits, I like fruits,
1: but coffee and chocolate <laughs> sorry um, no, uh,
2: no I mean so. y- you are asking what what pollination is yeah. I mean the most basic level it's it's plant sex if if I can say that on on the radio um yeah like I just did um but i mean the the plants they they need the pollen, which is um you know the the male sex cells needs to get to the female parts of the plants, and so that's the most basic thing and some plants do that by wind, grasses, you know conifers, some of the big trees do that they just release millions of pollen grains, and some of them get to the
1: right so place. if you've ever seen a dogwood. Yeah, blooming and seeing all that white fluffy stuff floating in the air—that's a good example. That's
2: a great example. Or right. if you're like me and you suffer from seasonal allergies, yeah. <laughs> which is the grass pollen. I am like <laughs> you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then something like 85 to 90 percent of the plants, their their pollen is too heavy to do that, and so they actually rely upon something to move it. Um, there are a few birds that help with pollination, like hummingbirds that we get around here. Um, one or two bats in North America help with pollination in the deserts, but the huge majority of of animals that move pollen around are insects,
1: and and for the most part, bees.
2: Bees bees are probably the most important single group. There's all, I mean wasps also help, but there are some beetles and some flies, and then butterflies and moths as well, okay. um, and e- even some ants actually help out with some of the low-growing plants.
1: The, the good flies. ones. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so um, an insect is going to go into one flower, grab all the pollen, and of course bees need that pollen too to feed their own mm-hmm. um, hives. And then they take it, they go to another plant where they deposit some of it.
2: Yeah, I mean the, the bees are not actually going out with the intention of pollination. Right. But <laughs> they're going out to collect food for themselves. Right. Um, they're feeding on the nectar. They take the pollen and the nectar back to their nests. Um, but they're one of the very few insects that actually actively collects and transports pollen. Um, and they, I mean, they have very effective ways of carrying it, but if you get covered in a thousand grains of pollen, you might only be able to scrape off 960 of them. <laughs> 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 and so there's always sense. some that falls off. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. And right, right. But, but the, the bees are going from one flower to another of the same species, and that means that the pollen's very accurately moved.
1: Now, um, do bees also pollinate alfalfa? They,
2: they do, yeah.
1: So so when we're thinking about, you know, what fruits and vegetables, also if you're, you know, carnivore, mm-hmm. uh, most cattle is fed alfalfa. Hay comes from alfalfa. Or, or
2: clover as well. And clover. So Red clover is uh, another forage. And again,
1: without meat. that being pollinated, then you wouldn't have anything to feed cows
2: yeah no I mean that that's one one reason why it's one in third mouthfuls of food right. and because you know milk as well is influenced by it
1: right, there's a a great video on your or a slideshow on your website um which is Xerces, and it's x e r c e s that's right uh, dot com is that uh, is that dot org. Dot, org, dot, Xerces org. dot org thank you sure. for correcting me and it it kind of shows, uh, you know, like a scene of a supermarket inside, like the produce section and then, and the dairy section. And then it shows what would be left if there were no pollinators. Mm-hmm. And it's a little startling <laughs> because you don't think about the dairy. Yeah. You know, you think, oh, or fruit, you know, mm-hmm. wouldn't have fruit or berries. But uh, when you really see the, the effect. So let's start talking about. The what and um and the what is that as um, as we've heard you know kind of the sound bites and the headlines that bees and butterflies are in trouble, and uh, let 's talk about butterflies first, then we we'll get them out of the way, <laughs> and then we can really dig deep into the other stuff because i I wanted to t- tell my butterfly story, <laughs> um, but um the monarch butterfly, of course, plays a really important role in this as well, and is a. a a marker for environmental health, kind Mm -hmm. of a a marker. And I was was kind of stunned when I read the number 28,000-something left of monarch. Like that's how many monarch butterflies are accounted for, and that's down from millions
2: yeah yeah that's that was the
1: count like it 's not a hundred thousand it 's no. not one hundred and twenty eight thousand no. i I even asked myself, well, how can they count that few <laughs> like how is that possible? you know how do you determine that number
2: yeah well we th- um we have a wonderful group of volunteers who 've been actually for twenty years now they 've been going um, and tracking down the overwintering sites for the monarch butterflies in California so Just for clarity, that number is the number of monarchs overwintering in California, which is separate from the numbers that overwinter in Mexico. Um, And so, yeah, for 20 years now in the, the Western monarch Thanksgiving count, people have been going out and tracking down where these monarchs are overwintering in California and counting and estimating the numbers that are clustering there.
1: And wh- where do they like to overwinter?
2: They they overwinter in mostly forested groves along the coast of California, and it's, it's all the way actually from Humboldt County down to Baja California, um, and some of the sites are around a little further inland, but very close to the edge of the San Francisco Bay, because they go for these sites that are cool mm-hmm. um, and have stable temperatures and are I slightly protected
1: well i wanted to share um in the late 90s i was at a coastal campground um south of santa barbara in southern california and, and it was a brown dusk and i just happened uh you know to kind of walk on a trail but not very far and uh where uh the landscape was primarily oak and eucalyptus and it was across from the ocean and um it was dusk and there was a cloud of swarming butterfly, of monarchs. And it, w- it was like a cloud. And, and what they were doing was uh, they would go up into the tree and form these clusters. Mm-hmm. Um, I think where they could stay warm, right? If Or whatever, for whatever reason, yeah. safe. Mm-hmm. I don't know be butterfly <laughs> behavior. But w- after they would cluster exactly like leaves. And it, it was remarkable. And I'm grateful for that experience, especially in light of this kind of startling news. So, um, explain to our listeners the important role that monarchs play in the environment.
2: Yeah, monarchs, um, as adults, they do help pollinate things. um, That's for sure. Um, But with with butterflies, often the the most important role they play in the environment is as food um, because their caterpillars are eating plants and converting plant into an animal protein. For for monarchs, most people realise or have heard the story of how monarch caterpillars are toxic Um, because because they the the milkweed that they eat there are there are chemicals in that um, and it makes the monarch caterpillars taste really disgusting. Uh Um, And one of the most um, well-known examples, when this was really first discovered, was some decades ago. Lincoln Brower um, was doing an experiment, and he did this amazing. Um, series of photographs with a a blue jay which hadn't been um hadn't encountered monarch caterpillars before and they fed them and the blue jay was happy to try and eat it but then immediately barfed them back up and so have this (laughs) this this wonderful tale of the barfing blue jay um which just demonstrated it it could well be um, but they just demonstrated how the, the caterpillars taste disgusting and that protects them. But it doesn't protect them from everything. So there are some birds right. that will eat them and some mammals and other insects as well. So, so, so what
1: is the decline? Why the decline?
2: Some things we can't give a direct answer on. There are it could be this and it, that, yeah, or a combination. exactly. Of it's normally a combination of things. So the the big thing that's um, impacting monarch butterflies, um, or several big things really, um, but it's loss of habitat, mm-hmm. um, both the overwintering sites because they are they need very particular conditions in those overwintering sites, and so as the trees grow old and and or development comes along and opens up a gap and then the wind comes through or the weather comes in and, and it's all of a sudden that site's no longer um, suitable um, also habitat across the, the breeding range so that the, those monarchs leave their overwintering sites in February and March and then fly out across California and then on beyond that to Oregon and Washington and Idaho and you know Nevada and so on um, and so th- these these butterflies they need to have the milkweed for their caterpillars to, to eat where, where they're traveling through. And they also need nectar plants um, because the, the adults are fueled by nectar both whilst they're, they're breeding and going through those because they go through about three or four generations in the summer. Um, but they also need the nectar in the fall to f- fuel and power that flight. Um, because if you're flying from Idaho, to California, that's quite a long way.
1: Need, need, we all need fuel to mm-hmm. go, and that's butterfly fuel, huh? Yeah.
2: Um, and so, th- I mean, those are the, the really big things. Um, we're also struggling a little bit with, um, well, not us so much, because if the monarchs that are struggling, <laughs> 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 we're struggling with the concepts. Um, but it's, it's like there are people who are planting milkweeds in their gardens, but they're planting non-native species of milkweeds. There's one called tropical milkweed, and it seems that that, because it's an evergreen, um, it supports a parasite of the monarchs, and so when the monarchs are on it, the parasite gets them, and it weakens them, and they either don't survive so long or they're smaller and weaker, and and gradually it's this um, process of attrition that has just diminished and diminished the population.
1: Now, it at Xerxes, you can learn what types of milkweed or mm-hmm. how to create um, uh, an inviting uh, space for yeah. butterflies and insects.
2: Yeah, because that's one thing that uh, we can get doom and gloomy um, when we're talking about these things. Yeah. But, but moving beyond that, I mean, th- one of the great things about monarch conservation and you know, insect conservation is that everybody can do something to help because it's not something that has to happen in a distant wilderness um, or a nature reserve it's something that can happen in your yard in your parking strip in that bioswale on your street corner in your park um, there's just everywhere that you can put in um, milkweeds of the right sort and nectar plants will will help support these butterflies because they do they fly a long way um, and so they'll keep moving and keep finding the resources
1: that are out there for them well, I think that's great. That just you kind know, of speaks once again to the fact that um, even though as individuals we might not be able to solve the entire problem, um, <laughs> together we can all contribute to helping the yeah. the, the problem get better. Yeah, I,
2: I think it was Calvin Coolidge who said that I may not be, may not be able to do everything at once, but there's something we can do at once.
1: I love that. That sounds true. Um, yeah. Also. Um, Vegetable oils, something we don't think about in terms of po- uh, related pollination, but mm-hmm. they are. Safflower oils, yeah. um, canola oil, sunflower oils, mm-hmm. all dependent on cross-pollination. Um, one of the other things I, I got very excited about um, in learning about Xerxes was uh, the work that you do with uh, corporations, mm-hmm. uh, with some corporations, um, that... Grow um, crops uh, to sell their products, and one of them um, was general mills, um, a, a what we consider you know kind of like a large mega corporation mega farm that sometimes we think of in less flattering terms um, because of their size, but in fact uh, they uh, are doing interplanting to invite pollinators so tell us a little bit about how xerxes connects with a corporation um like how do you make that connection and um are they eager to like do they acknowledge that there's a problem and you help them you you help teach them how to solve it how does that relationship come together
2: yeah it's always a balancing act anytime a nonprofit gets to work with um a business entity for sure um and the The approach that Xerxes has always taken with this is that we will will never work with a company that can't share our mission, um, and so there are some corporations which we have a strict line, like no way, you know, um, we're not going to um, take money <laughs> from from you because you know there's no benefit to us.
1: So they donate money for tax write-off, but not actually. Not do, to do anything no not no no action no actually does yeah
2: um we we've had we we have partnerships um relationships with a number of food companies um i mean that that example you mentioned earlier of the grocery stores with and without pollinator um dependent foods that was from whole foods markets okay. um, who were doing a pollinator promotion for several years but then with um, companies like uh, General Mills that you mentioned, and they have various brands as well, um, and, and Hagen Das, another large company that we're working with, um, our focus is on helping them transform the, the farms and the farming systems that supply their products. I mean, th- they're probably driven largely by consumer demand because they are in a consumer market at the end. I mean, if people aren't going to buy their products, then they, you know, they don't have a very good business. Right. Um, and there's certainly um, a huge upsurge of interest in sustainability and environmental con- um, conservation.
1: Do you think that's consumer pressure or. Um or a, like a, a realization that without the pollination, they won't have farms?
2: I, I think it's a combination of both. Both. I mean, I, I think the consumer pressure has helped to shift the way some companies think and approach. Um, but for some um the business w- businesses we work with, and, and I'll, you mentioned General Mills, and I'll use them as an example, at no point have they ever really sought out publicity. Some companies try and have media days and press releases about all the great stuff they're doing, but General Mills has just been working quietly.
1: We'll describe the what background. they're doing.
2: They're, I mean, w- we, we have contracts with them so that our conservation staff are um, going out and working with the farmers who are providing the the raw food products for them. Um, and we're helping them reduce the pesticide use on their farms. We're um, working with them to integrate habitat into the farms, whether that's hedgerows or flowering strips down the side of a field or a, a, a meadow. Or I mean, there's lots of different ways in which you can um, bring new insect habitat into the farms. And sometimes it involves taking crop um, acreage out of production um, so that you can put fresh habitat in and and through that we're able to um increase the the pollinator populations on the farms but also the the populations of tiger beetles for example and surfid flies and all these you know lady beetles and and all these other pest eating insects um and so that that allows them to grow the crops with less pesticides
1: and and pesticides well, I'll ask, I'll ask the question mm. because I don't know. Are, are pesticides one of the main factors in the decline in bee populations?
2: It's, it's a big one for sure. Um, I, the, the really big one is habitat loss um, because you know, our landscapes used to be more diverse. There would be weeds down the fence row. There would be a, a hedgerow. You know, there, there would be woodlots. Um, and gradually those features have have gone um, but what remains has suffered from pesticide use The big pesticide group that most people are, are now aware of is um, one called neonicotinoids i'm uh, glad you said it <laughs> <laughs> yeah most people shorten it to neonics because it's a lot easier <laughs> i practiced and then i gave up <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, i've had lots of practice um but that th- th- those are a group of pesticides that were introduced back in the 1990s, um, and they seem idyllic from the, the crop perspective because they get inside the plant, and so therefore they're really accurately located. Um, but they're inside the plant, and so now anything that feeds on nectar and pollen um, can pick up the toxins.
1: Well, we are going to talk more about that. We're going to talk about a aquatics, and, uh, and so much more. Um, my name is Robbie Gaiman. I am the host of Digital Divide. I'm talking with Matthew Shepard from the Xerces Society. And we are going to go to a little musical break, and we'll be right back with you. Keep your radio turned on.
0: Nature's week
1: Welcome Back to the Digital Divide. Uh, that was a band called Spirit. And I, if my memory is it's a little faulty, but I think that song's really from maybe like the late 60s or 1970s, some in that period. And uh, they were actually a band out of Southern California. And here they were writing and singing about the environment then. Again, kind of that same tipping point where we said, oh, like the first Earth Day, maybe that was 1974 and... You know, people starting to have environmental awareness around that time. And and I just thought that would be like kind of an ideal um, song. I bet yeah. a lot of our listeners remember that. That yeah, was great. Uh, so
2: that's the same era when Rachel Carson was was writing. and has had such a profound impact on us.
1: Uh, and, and I think that Rachel really is responsible for um, making people just aware of the mm-hmm. environment and aware of... Um, being a good caretaker versus a bad caretaker. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> we were talking with Matthew Shepard from the Xerxes Society. And um, I was looking at the website, some of the um, species that are endangered. Well, actually, a report just came out, and you could probably speak about it um, in more in detail. And um, that, uh, the. The report that just came out in the news the other day, that's like how many species, like 50 percent, like a huge number of species is already gone. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? What does that mean? (laughs) What does that mean?
2: Wow. It it means that we haven't done a very good job in protecting them.
1: Well, it definitely (laughs) means that. Um, It
2: means we have a lot more work to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ways in which it touches our lives is less clear at the moment. Um, okay. I mean, it, it's always a, a a bit of a conundrum because often species that are endangered are endangered because they're naturally rare or they don't live in a large area, and so they're they're always at risk.
1: Their their habitat, they they're really super dependent on their habitats, mm-hmm. which may be disappearing due to logging farming practices
2: but they're also an indicator of the impacts that we're having um and just because you know they live in a small area whether it's the top of a mountain range or a a single lake or something that doesn't mean that they they um can be lost you know that there's every species has an intrinsic right to exist and to survive and uh, as a um a conservationist, mm-hmm. I, I recognize that, um, and I I sometimes uh, often push back when people are like, Well, what do they do? We won't miss them, they won't affect our lives if they're not there. Um, and it's like, Well, you can't unpick I the, the question the fabric. is, How
1: do you know <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly?
2: <laughs> I mean, ju- just because you don't know doesn't mean that they're not important, it just means that you don't know, right? And if you unpick the fabric of our environment. I mean, it's like, okay, I've, I've got this, this blanket. I'm suddenly going to pull out a thread here and pull out a thread there. It doesn't seem like much until okay. it you falls apart. You still have apart. a blanket, then you have yeah. three threads. Yeah, You're but like, it's well, not it as warm as used it used to, to be. a blanket, right. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually it falls apart.
1: Yeah, and, and just recently we we're, we're keep hearing almost every week now about um, dead whales washing up in the San Francisco mm-hmm. Bay. It's a mystery, Right nobody knows why, but there's a reason, Definitely. and I'm sure it'll come to light um some of the species on this list of either endangered or extinct um uh the Pacific walrus in Alaska um uh the red knot red knot rufa, which I know not what <laughs> what a rufa is um wolverines in Idaho, Wyoming, and Washington are neighbors. Um, not the cartoon Wolverine or Tasmanian <laughs> devil, <double. laughs> actual animal. Um, the sage grouse in Colorado and Utah. Um, the island marby butterfly in the state of Washington. These mm-hmm. are all our neighbors here. Um, so that uh, that affects us locally. Um, the Southern Rockies boreal, boreal toad. and when a toad goes extinct, I, I probably said that wrong. Um, or is endangered. Uh, like toads definitely have an impact on the ecosystem, right? They eat insects, um, like they have a direct role. Mm-hmm. Toads are important. I mean, all these animals yeah. are important. Yeah. Toad's not more important than <laughs> Wolverine, but it's easier to identify what their job is. Um, uh, the great white shark. Yeah. Um, and the wood turtle, mm-hmm. which um, is in the Great Lakes. Uh, and then there are, Honorable mentions, the sand dune lizard, um, another thing I don't know what she is, uh, Graham's penstern. Do you know what that is? I don't know what that is and, and, a, and a cactus pygmy owl. Um, so help us understand um, the work that Xerxes does uh, to um, with their conservation in relationship to animals and aquatic aquatic invertebrates
2: yeah a lot of our work has focused on protecting habitat Um, takes us back to the point that if you don't have habitat you don't have wildlife Um, and habitat provides long-term security to insects birds mammals doesn't matter what the wildlife is they they still need it and the, the way that Xerces does that is we're not like, say, the Nature Conservancy. We don't have large areas of land that we own and can manage ourselves. It means that we're always working in partnership with other people, and we're always looking for the way to have the biggest impact. Um, and sometimes that means that we're working with, say, you know, a, a, a food in industry business that allows us to impact tens of thousands of acres of land, you know, kind of landscape scale. Um, impacts and sometimes it means that we're working on one small site because that might be the only one where that butterfly is exi- It remains But you mentioned the island marble and there's only a few hundred of those butterflies remaining in the world um, only on the San Juan Islands of in, in the Puget Sound. Um, and it's one of the things you're like, wow, if this was a bird, <laughs> that would have been protected decades ago. And but because it's an insect. People are like, wow, we don't need that. Bugs. Yeah. <laughs> and so there is also this this struggle of trying to change people's attitudes all the time. So that's why coming here today and chatting with you, is such a pleasure.
1: Well, thank you. <laughs>
2: um, but also that sometimes we're actually are lawyering up and partnering to try and make sure that there is legal protections for some of these species.
1: Well, what type of lawyer... Um, works in conservation
2: we find ourselves working with other organizations such as defenders of wildlife okay they they have staff attorneys we we don't have people like that we um xerxes society is is a science-based organization and so we have lots of scientists and conservation biologists and um, people working on the ground um but we don't have the legal teams to take that kind of stuff on um and also we don't do it very often we may only do one or two um, petitions a year, uh, but sometimes they can take a decade to follow through on.
1: well, science is good and um important, mm-hmm. and ha- like how do you how do you work in this political climate? Uh, you know we've it it felt i i it felt like we were making um strides ahead in um, a- environmental mm-hmm. conservation. And now um, we're in kind of a, a remarkable, um, and I'm going to just optimistically say, temporarily brief period of uh, denial and, and science denial and climate denial. Um, how's your organization? You just kind of kind keep your eyes on the prize and working with the companies um, directly, which does make an impact, um, and of say well we're those guys are doing this over here Mm. these anti-science people but we're still making progress in this other way yeah
2: no we we are we are keeping our as you say, keeping our eyes on the prize because the prize is changing the environment creating habitat trying to make things more secure Um, Under the the previous administration, we were working with White House directly. um, There's the National Pollinator Strategy. Um, We helped the White House craft that and develop that. And so we've got a number of staff who are working with um, federal agencies, not necessarily at the top level in Washington, but in the state level, Um, so that we're helping to train um staff with the Natural Resources Conservation Service, for example, so that they have the information and the knowledge and the, the tools that allow them to go out and um do pollinator conservation on the ground with, with farmers. Um, we we also um we are involved with trying to um create new um rules and regulations and and local ordinances around pesticide use for example. Here in, in Portland, there was a, a ban on, on neonics a few years ago. We were involved with working with the commissioners to get that passed.
1: I remember that.
0: Yeah.
1: I great. mean, that's still, I think, an ongoing topic, you know, just to so people don't, you know, go to th- their local hardware store and mm-hmm. buy pesticides that um, are going to further hurt insect populations. Mm-hmm. But... They're still on the shelves, right?
2: Yeah, it's, it's not illegal to sell them or buy them or use them on your, on your own garden. Um, mm-hmm. the, the Portland ordinance just affects their use on city property, parks, city streets, and so on. Um, but, yeah, the, the other thing that we're doing is that and after the last election, we had a lot of people come to us and say, uh, what can I do? Because there, were, there was this kind of sense of almost shell-shocked. Um, and so we listened to all the people saying, what can I do? And so we said, OK, this is a moment where maybe what happens at the Washington level, we may not be able to influence. And again, we're not a big organization. Other or nonprofits have much larger staff and lobbying, and we've never got into any of that. Um, we've always tried to focus on on, on real conservation change. Um, and so people come to us and say, what can we do? And we say, OK, this is what you're wanting we're, this is a new way we're going to focus on the things that people can do i mean when everything around you is swirling and seeming unreal how can you ground yourself well right. there are some things that you can do directly in your, your backyard your neighborhood Tell us your local out. community yeah and, but these things give give people something solid little, little steps um, because in the end the way we're going to transform our landscapes is not by sweeping legislation it's going to be by I mean. individuals, by people making change in their daily lives.
1: So, um, if you have a, like a whole suburb of of individuals replanting their back and front yards mm-hmm. to be bird friendly and bee friendly yeah. and butterfly friendly, then in in some way and not using pests, <laughs> not using those pesticides, yep. you are taking back. Um, large you could potentially take yeah,
2: that th- there's potentially millions of acres there um and it's also giving people a sense of control um, but it's, it's real like it's not yeah exactly yeah. it's it's very real and they can see the change because they can see the plants growing and the flowers and, and when that happens then they see the insects coming in they and dip. so <laughs> it's really it's is really satisfying and it's short term. Um, satisfaction, not. I mean, it's it's long-term satisfaction, but there, there's a, there's a short-term, there's an instant f- sense of wow! I did that. I did something good.
1: Right, right. You you. I mean, it's like a cause and an effect. You don't have to wait a long time, or it's n- you're doing it at home. It's not happening somewhere else. It's you're seeing the results. Yeah. You're seeing more insects in your garden, more yep. bees and butterflies uh, and, again, and moths. Yeah,
2: and this brings us back to why we work with with farmers and park managers and. In the public land managers and uh, all sorts of people everywhere that we're working with because these are ways in which change can happen on the ground um, begin to create better habitats remove mm. pesticide threats
1: how, how do you work with aquatic habitats how does hmm. and and what <laughs> what you know what what's at risk in aquatic habitats and how do you how do you work yeah.
2: with that? How do you yeah, do the, that? W- one of the challenges with uh, aquatic habitats is literally they're downstream of everything else. Mm. So what someone puts on their lawn will wash off down the drains and end up in the local creek. Right. You know, the as we're driving along, each time we come to a stop sign, we put our foot in the brake, and a little bit of stuff wears off ah. the brake pads, and that on the road and washes down the drains. Um, so trying to change the pollution problems. I mean, so again, this is what you can do in your park or your yard. I mean, don't use that lawn pesticide. <laughs> and those are things that we can all do that begin to change the quality of the water in the creek. There are also directly things you can do in a, in, in a creek to improve the habitat. Um, and I, I see this. I mean, I, I live out in Washington County in the, the suburbs out that way. Um, and I see it in my local creek where um, clean water services have come through and they've put big logs back in the creek. And, they're, you know, all these features that were once taken out because it was all about let's get that water moving. And now they're putting logs back in the creek to create the dams to slow the water down because it improves the habitat and it makes the um, flood problems Less further downstream because you're pu- you're holding the water back and releasing it slowly.
1: And that's would happen just in nature: or trees or plants or twigs, mm-hmm. and limbs,
2: beavers, fa- <laughs> and beavers. <right? laughs> beavers are great; <laughs> they're all uh,
1: working and um, creating that environment in the waterways that is more um, more natural, more organic. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's heartening to hear that. Putting the
2: stuff back in. Yeah, I mean it's <laughs> great. Uh, one of the um, particular groups of vertebrates that we've been involved with in aquatic areas are the freshwater mussels, which many people don't realise are existing out there because you think of mussels when you go to the beach and yes. you see them on the rocks. I do. Um, but those are totally different. I mean, th- so the freshwater mussels are these amazing animals. Um, look, look mu- pretty much like a rock if you're just peering through the the water surface, and you wouldn't spot them in there. Um, but they, they filter the water and they, they feed by taking the algae and such like out of the water um, and help to keep the water clean and can actually remove some of the toxins too. And so there are these animals out there that are working really hard. Hey, I, I want to describe them Thanks,
0: muscles? Yeah,
2: exactly. I want to describe them <laughs> as, as hard drinking. You know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> creek <because> water. <laughs> yeah, but they're, they're filtering the Don't water. Don't drink it you yourself, <laughs> unfiltered. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but they're cli- keeping the water clearer and cleaner, which supports salmon,
1: for example. Right, and then other insects are in the creek mm-hmm. as well. And it's a whole ecosystem. Yeah. And just because we we don't know that ecosystem and we, we aren't aware of all the inner dynamics doesn't mean there isn't a lot happening and that it's not important just because we we're, we're ignorant about yeah. it or we can't see it with our eyes
2: yeah and the other great thing about freshwater mussels is that more people are becoming more aware and so you know you you want to put a um a road crossing and people are actually now are going in and looking in the creek to see what are their mussels in there what can we do Should we move them whilst we're doing it? How can we not disturb them? Right. Um, City of Portland has been a great partner um, in the Westmoreland area where they've taken out culverts on some roads and put bridges back in, which is partly to help salmon, um, but also it helps the mussels and all that work. They've been doing mussel surveys and they've been making sure they're not disturbing the mussels, which is really, really fantastic. And a shout out to City of Portland there.
1: Yeah, (laughs) that is good work. So um, that sounds like a victory. Um, tell us about some other victories that um, are happening as a result of your work or that your volunteer work.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the, the, the be best-known ones is the rusty patch bumblebee. The um, rusty patch bumblebee. Um, which doesn't actually affect us because it lives the other side of the rock is, but has gone into huge decline over a couple of decades um, and became the very first bee in... Continental United States to be protected under the Endangered Species Act um, a couple of years ago, so that's I mean that's huge, and that's now become and um, it's still
1: protected. That hasn't been oh, removed.
2: No, st- no, it's 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 <laughs> still still protected, and it it became a rallying cry for people in a way that you know normally you see people you know c- come around and stand up to for eagles and wolves and bears and there was this bee that people were caring about
1: <laughs> and how did uh, how how did the bee <laughs> um gain this this kind of loyal fan base um, partly
2: we, ha- we had some amazing partners um who did some i mean th- there was a wonderful um film created by clay bolton neil lucen called a ghost in the making where they went on the trail of this bumblebee and that got shown at Dozens, hundreds, maybe of, mo- of film festivals around the country, and people were just entranced by it. Again, we you, sometimes it's the first time people have really stopped and thought about insect conservation, um, and it was it was fantastic to see that upswelling of support.
1: And uh, just in case people could find that film. Somewhere on their Roku, um, mm-hmm. what what is the name of it?
2: It's called A Ghost in the Making.
1: A Ghost in the Making about the Rusty Patch Bumblebee. Rusty yeah. Patch Bumblebee. <laughs> That's just the cutest name. And it's a the other <laughs> thing. It's a really
2: cute <laughs> bee too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm gonna have to look that guy up. Um, tell us how um, our listeners can get involved. What can they do? Um, what type of work or action can they take obviously they could look up um bee and butterfly friendly plants and the right type of milkweed but if they're more action-oriented what what can they do what um how can they work with first how can they be a volunteer yeah we
2: do have um some volunteer opportunities um not that many i mean we we use we have some wonderful volunteers who come in and you know stuff envelopes and (laughs) All the kind of that slightly more teethings. It's really important <laughs> stuff, and we <laughs> love the folks that come and do that. Um, we also have um, a, a volunteer ambassador group that we're just very early stages of setting up, and we have a, a dozen, 15 I think it is now, who are based in Portland or Salem area, and they're going out and doing events, um, tabling at the zoo and um, community events around um, getting the message out then there's also uh, for people who want to be you know, really active in the local community there are initiatives such as B City USA um, which we didn't create but the folks who did came to us a couple of years ago and asked us whether we would take it on because it just got too big for them and they were wanting to retire Um <laughs> and so th- this is something where that I mean a, a city and there's also B Campus USA which is focused on college campuses and um, the city on the campus—they make a commitment to doing certain things, like create habitat, um, uh, reduce pesticides by adopting IPM for the p- um, pest management, and also to do um, uh, education and awareness activities.
1: IPM—that's In integrated, integrated pest management. Pest management. Yeah. yeah, I'm
2: sorry, I'm falling into the jargon. <laughs> that's <here>. okay. Um, <laughs> um, that's, I knew that one. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then, then you can a- apply to be become an affiliate of, of B Campus or, or B City USA. And then th- your whole communi- can community can take on awesome stuff. And there's 150 affiliates across the country so far. Um, and in, in our area, uh, Wilsonville is. Um, West Lynn has just become one. I know of a couple of other cities that are thinking about it, um, including Portland. Um, so that's something else that your listeners might like to consider. If they'd like their their town to become a Bee City USA, they can look into it. Um, what does
1: it mean to be a Bee City it USA? Awesome. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it means that you're
2: awesome. It means that you're taking a, a national leadership on pollinator conservation and that you really, really want to change um, the way your your city deals with these things. And it's all at city USA dot org.
1: Well, it sounds like there are many different opportunities and, and not necessarily exclusive to Xerxes, um, but there are, it just sounds like there are a number of initiatives where people, depending, you know, if you want to go out and work in the waterways, mm-hmm. there's an organization where you can go out probably and learn what a freshwater mussel <laughs> Looks like a rock, <laughs> but don't touch it and um or if you want it, you know or you don't you don't use um uh, those pesticides that are um, damaging and you know create more more harm mm-hmm. um, they're not necessary there are other ways what are what are alternatives to those that people c- can
2: can uh, use the, the best alternatives are insects
1: Right. By, <laughs> by by
2: creating a good habitat in your garden, you're going to bring in all the insects, and they going to be warfare out there between them, and so yeah. the, the you know the the wasps that you might not like, they're fantastic at controlling the pest species.
1: They're everywhere. <laughs> they're everywhere,
2: <laughs> and so there, there's, there's a host of stuff that that will will come in, and will will b- everything will balance out. And you won't have any pest problems.
1: Yeah, my, my the way I deal with those insects is I, ju- I try to distract them. <laughs> like, look, there's some water over there, away <laughs> from where <Yeah>. I am. And <laughs> you know, oh, there's some there's some food over there for you that away from me. <laughs> look over <laughs> there. <laughs> That's kind of my my technique. Depends on the insect. Yeah. There's a couple that got no mercy, but (laughs) none of the good ones.
2: (laughs) So another thing that if people want to help out with some of the community science projects that are out there, that's a great way that you can be helping um, increase our knowledge of of what's out there and, and... help guide and shape conservation strategies.
1: What, what would an example of a community conservation project be that people could be involved in?
2: Some of the great ones um, are just watching out for bumblebees. We have There's, there's Bumblebee Watch, which is a nationwide program where you're, you're taking photographs just using your smartphone as an app. So you can take a photograph of bumblebee, help identify it, tell them where you found it, and report it. Um, and I then there's there's one called the Pacific Northwest Bumblebee Atlas that covers Idaho, Washington, and Oregon. And you can adopt a grid square. Um, and then you go out twice a year and you go look for bumblebees and report that. And so you get to go to some beautiful spots.
1: <laughs> that that sounds like fun and an excellent use for your smartphone. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> so um, tell our listeners where they can learn more. Um how can they get in touch, and, and what can they do?
2: Sure, but one of the best ways is to go to our website, xerces.org. They
1: spell it for everybody.
2: X-E-R-C-E-S dot O-R-G, and you'll find all sorts of information about community science and plant lists and pesticides and things you can do. It's can a
1: cornucopia of information. <laughs> it's a great website.
2: Thank you. You can also follow us on social media, inevitably, at Xerces Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, And then there's several other websites that I've mentioned in the last hour, but I won't try and list them all now. But, you know, Bumblebee Watch, Pacific Northwest, Bumblebee Atlas, Bee City USA. Um, Often just typing that into a search engine is the best way of finding them. And most of those, the URL is the name of the the project.
1: And and there are a lot of bee activities going on um, right here in Portland. I actually have a couple of friends that... Um, are constantly doing um, educational mm-hmm. um, projects and and um, active right in the city with B with B projects. So um, you can uh, go to the website again. It's X E R C E S. Uh, let's see, Xerces is how it's pronounced. Mm-hmm. Society, and uh, y- there is so much information there. I want to just encourage you uh, to just you know bring your browser over there and dig in um because there is a wealth of information and i want to thank you so much Matthew um Matthew Shepard from the Xerxes Society for um, coming on the show today and uh there is an archive that will be up on the KBO website kboo.fm the digital divide and uh it should be at the top of the list uh hopefully it'll be chronological And uh, you can re-listen to this. And I'll uh, go back in and post the links to your website and some of the other organizations that we talked about. Uh, Was there anything that we missed?
2: I don't think so. We've covered a lot of ground. This was a real pleasure. Thank you.
1: And uh, stay tuned. We've got music coming up at the top of the hour. And thanks for tuning in. You can tune in every second Friday at 11 a.m. for The Digital Divide. Keep your radio turned on.
0: So...